This is a podcast from thebuglepodcast.com. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 246 of The Bugle for the week beginning Monday, the 16th of September, 2013, with me, Andy Zaltzman, live in the centre of the universe. Sorry, London. Ah, f*** it. The centre of the universe. And joining us for this very special anniversary, 390 years to the second, on Monday, since the Mayflower began her voyage to North America with the Pilgrim Fathers on board, the original P. Diddy's, took their (laughs) non-luxury transatlantic cruise... And on that anniversary, we're joined by another Englishman who fled these shores in the pursuits of his religious freedoms, uh, his religion involving uh, one that believes in him being on telly more often. It's the Victoria <laughs> and Albert of voicing over animations. It's John Oliver. <laughs> Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. First things first, Andy. Yep. Great news out of Afghanistan. And there is a sentence that has not been spoken for hundreds of years, <laughs> possibly in the history of civilization, unless you really hate giant Buddha statues. <laughs> now, oh, God, they, what, are, they are so annoying. Well, well they yeah, I mean, in which case, the there was some amazing news a while ago. <laughs> uh, what is the good news? Well, is there peace there? No. Uh, is it any closer to being a functional country rather than a series of chaotic warlord-run provinces? No. Have the Taliban decided to S- act a little less like a bunch of record-breaking dickbags? <laughs> of course not. But it's better than all of those things, Andy. <laughs> Afghanistan has won its first ever international football tournament. Yay! That is better than all three of those things combined. Uh, Afghanistan beat India who were the defending South Asian champions, 2-0, 2-0, in the final in Nepal. Now, this is especially impressive, considering that in the Taliban era, the entire sport was banned, even for small children. I don't think they even fielded a team in an international competition for over 15 years. But the point is, the celebrations were in classic Afghan style, Andy, uncontrolled and incredibly dangerous. Uh, Despite an official plea from the Kabul police for people not to fire weapons into the air to celebrate, the sky was apparently full of gunfire all night, and reports said that many of the most intense gunfire actually came from inside police station compounds. (laughs) There was... There was a welcome home event at the stadium in Kabul uh, where General Akbar uh, gave a speech saying, now this is the time Afghan politicians should learn from national football. And of course he's right, Andy. He's exactly right. Afghanistan should go and fight India. (laughs) Isn't that what he was saying? That's where true happiness lives? It sounds sounds eerily like uh, the aftermath of Gillingham 2, Halifax 0 back in 1993. (laughs) Um, well, that's—I mean—that's good that that football stadium is being used for more football-related activities than it tr- had uh, had been under the Taliban. Mm-hmm. When uh, you know, if someone went down pretty easily, it wasn't that they'd just been uh, the victim of a foul; more that they'd been shot in the head. <laughs> so, um, thanks to all buglers who've been to see uh, the uh, my satirist for hire show at Soho Theatre uh, during the first uh, first week. I hope you've uh, enjoyed it. If you are uh, coming uh, for the rest of the run. Um, do send in your satirical requests, uh, particularly if you're coming on Monday or Saturday next week, when Saturday's looking like it might be a pretty short show if uh, <laughs> the uh, ticket uh, buyers do not uh, start sending me some stuff. Um, uh, this is Bugle 246. Uh, what, a, what a number, John. The highest test score ever made by the legendary England batsman Geoffrey Boycott. Well, that's um, what everyone was thinking yep. right then. 
He was famously dropped because he scored it too slowly. He was dropped for the next uh, next test match, which was uh, basically, a, I think, a, like a, a, his own personal satire on the history of the British Empire, that we were <laughs> dropped by the Empire for not ruling quickly enough. Uh, as we record, it's 50 years since uh, sex was legalised in Britain in 1963. <laughs> 85 years since frowning was made compulsory in public places uh, in this country after the government decided the nation had become too frivolous in the rather skittish 1920s. And 25 years since the World Bank agreed to impose a tax on shoulder pads and hair boofing products to try to stop <laughs> the seemingly uncontrollable expansion of the top 20% of 1980s women. Uh, the UN uh, itself was concerned that if clothing and hair volume continued growing at the rates of the 82 to 87 period, no one would have been able to move in the world by the year 2014. And thanks to their long-term foresight, we are still able to walk around today. And that's the kind of long-term planning that uh, the world could really do with in the 21st century. Uh, as always, a section of the Bugles going straight in the bin. This week, John, I know it's probably something you've been intimately involved in. It's been New York Fashion Week. Yeah. Um, of course, Andy. I've been up and down the catwalks like an actual cat. <laughs> uh, I have no business being there. <laughs> but fur really suits you. Um, <laughs> so we, uh, for our section of the bin, we have a review of all the uh, hip new clothes this week, including uh, all the things that have really caused a stir uh, in the Big Apple on the catwalks. The dead calf headscarf. That's from the rhyming garment designer, J. Perkin Ganch. Um, a twist on the classic 1950s. Uh, headscarf, but using a freshly hand-slaughtered veal calf, uh, described uh, by the fashion reviewer from the Harvard Journal of Applied Mathematics and uh, Clothing Accessories as, quotes, warm and cosy once the blood has stopped splurting everywhere. Uh, Gantch's other rhyming products include the schnauzer trouser, made from the pelts of the distinctively bearded German dog, the sweaty goat petticoat, self-explanatory and potently erotic, and the, <laughs> the egg flea prey negligee, Part omelette, part blood-sucking parasite, and part religious cassock. Uh, we also review the ever-descending uh, um, uh, waistband of youth trousers, reaching its logical conclusion with Brooklyn designer uh, Da Bench Kelly's ankle jeans, the must-have trouserial funkwear for today's urban-aware teenager. The ankle jeans are designed to sit around the uh, feet of the wearer, modelled on the jeans that the rapper Mogadishus K wore around his ankles on stage at the Bilestorm Festival of Misanthropic Arts in 2012, when he performed his hit R&B-infused rap anthem, Finish My Crossword or I'll Punch You in the Face, while sitting on a giant toilet and pointing a gun at a woman dressed as a scantily clad thesaurus. Uh, and also, uh, we look at the latest uh, products from the Parisian wine fan and celebrity milliner, the hat designer Flavonique Le Flobleur, with her Chateau d'Oeuf du Pape, a hat or chapeau which consists of a bird's nest shaped like a human breast or pap containing a roosting kestrel and its eggs, or as the French call them, oeufs. Ideally, uh, ideal for social functions and gala film launches. Uh, the bird nests on your bonds throughout the events before its young hatch and it flies off around the room pecking up any rem remaining canapes to take <laughs> back to the hat nest and puke into the baby kestrel's waiting mouths. A genuine fashion talking point. That section in the bin. Top story this week, the war that nearly was, then wasn't, but that still might be. Syria update! <laughs> and it's been a strange week in warmongering, Andy. When we left you last week, uh, it seemed odds on that America was going all in on attacking Syria with uh, the Obama administration pushing its ballistic chips across the table. But then, 
The president decided that he wanted congressional approval for a strike, meaning that before the US bought that plan, the White House needed to sell the shit out of it. So <laughs> that's what they've been trying to do over the past week. The president essentially needed to become a warmongering version of the ShamWow guy on late night infomercials. Hi, it's Barack here for Syrian intervention. Damascus is a mess right now, but don't worry, for a limited time offer, our patented series of airstrikes will clean that right up. All those tough to remove stains on humanity will be a thing of the past. Sarin? Gone. Blood? Gone. Religious tensions? What religious tensions? With an offer like this, you can't afford not to get involved. Call your congressman now. Offer available for a limited time. (laughs) So a 48-hour media sales onslaught was planned. The president had six network interviews planned, uh, plus uh, an address to the nation on the importance of military action. He was officially adopting his role as salesman-in-chief. What can I do to put you in a series of surgical airstrikes today? (laughs) All seemed to be moving in the desired explosive direction. And then Secretary of State John Kerry was asked an open-ended question in a press conference. He began opening and closing his mouth with collected (laughs) sounds coming out. And suddenly everything changed. A reporter asked him, is there anything at this point that the government of Syria could do or offer that would stop an attack? To which the on-message response from Kerry, of course, would have been, sure, they can get down on their knees and they can kiss my angry balls. <laughs> but, but no. Instead, Andy, Kerry went with sarcasm, which is always a wise tone to strike <laughs> when it comes to delicate international diplomacy. And he said, sure, he could turn over every single bit of his chemical weapons to the international community in the next week, turn it over, all of it, without delay, and allow a full and total accounting for that. But he isn't about to do it, and it can't be done, obviously. Going on to say, I mean, sure, were he to do that, I guess these words would, within hours, come back to bite me and the rest of the administration (laughs) in the arse. But that's not about to happen, obviously. In fact, if he does do it, I will personally get a tattoo of Bashar al-Assad's arse (laughs) on my arse. That is something that I will do. But that's not going to happen. Happen, obviously. So within milliseconds of uh, yeah. Kerry saying these things, and it was sounding pretty cross, kind of JK growling uh, kind of uh, act we was putting on. But within milliseconds, Russia had jumped on his sort of casual offhand uh, mumbling and said, oh yeah, that's a good idea. We'll go and ask Syria that. Now, Assad <laughs> may be many things, but he's not an idiot. Actually, he is an, he is, he is an idiot. <laughs> he is an idiot. But even... An idiotic child knows when there's an ice cream dangling in front of its face. And the chance not to be bombed shitless by America whilst also keeping key ally Russia on side was a pretty pretty dangly cornetto. So Assad said, why not? And Kerry and Obama then said, uh, oh yeah, uh, okay, I, I suppose it turns out that asking nicely was worth a go. Now, I'm not saying, John... I'm not saying that asking nicely should have necessarily been plan A, but I think it should have been somewhere between plans A and X. (laughs) But it appears that it only... They fluked it, John. It It is incredible. Russia broke a deal with Syria, seemingly... Partly just out of spite, though. It's like it's like Russia would be watching Kerry speak and said, uh, "Did you just hear what uh, Kerry said? You know what would be really funny, of course, doing exactly what he just said couldn't happen. You know, just to f- with him." Now, I'm not sure war has ever been avoided in a more childish way, Andy. <laughs> a White House official initially said that Kerry's remarks were, and I'm quoting, "a major goof," but. 
Then the official position quickly became that any deal was definitely worth exploring. So <laughs> Kerry essentially riffed his way into a major policy shift. And the next thing you know, Russia's brokering peace with Syria. He did it, Andy. I can't work out if John Kerry is bad at his job, good at it, or so terrible he's actually great at it. He, he basically blundered his way to peace. He's If there was a Nobel Prize for peace goofing, it would be his, Andy. He's an accidental Mother Teresa. He's a clumsy Dalai Lama. He's a slapstick Gandhi. <laughs> I was in a band called Slapstick Gandhi. Um, well, see, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. And it turns out that, that uh, I don't actually need it done within a week. Uh, now it looks like it's going to take a few months. Uh, John Kerry said, ah, no biggie. I was actually uh, thinking about a new tube of toothpaste, not handing over chemical weapons. I definitely need that within a week. Putin uh, replied, right, great. Hands in. One, two, three. Go team. Peace. And they all lived happily ever after the end. So it's um it's great news, John, that the war is over. Uh, or at least a bit of the war that we in Britain and America have to give a shit about. <laughs> that's so right. that's, that's fine. Everything else, ah, shit happens. Yeah, the, the Syrian genocide very much <laughs> continues, but our part of the war is over, in which case, peace in our time, just not in their time. <laughs> so, it, now, apparently out of nowhere, we do seem to have a non-military solution to this crisis, and that's got to be good news for the Obama administration, right? Well, not if you listen to the media here, because on <laughs> CNN, Nick Payton Walsh said the Obama administration, very much caught on the back foot, really struggling to catch up with the news. Now, if I was the president, Andy, and I am not... I really wouldn't worry about too much about struggling to catch up with the news because from my experience of watching it, you can just stand back and watch the news run around in a circle like a headless chicken before <laughs> tripping over its own dick. Then, boom, guess what? You're all caught up. Uh, this Also, this, this level of high-end gaff work from John Kerry really begs the question, where the f*** was Joe Biden in all of this, Andy? <laughs> Is he really going to let him get, get? Is he going to let himself get out peace gaffed by John Kerry? I've got to believe that he's in the White House right now in a pair of tearaway pants, saying, "Put me in, coach. Put me in the game. I, I can bring Israel and Palestine together by running my mouth off. I guarantee it." <laughs> but it's extraordinary that asking nicely has uh, has basically worked. I mean, it did, I guess it helped. Does work more effectively after you've initially asked less nicely and tried to look threatening. I mean, that's just basic right. parenting. Yeah, John. So I'm sure you've discovered with your uh, with your delightful uh, doggy. Um, yeah, you know, because you know, I, I have from my parenting career as well. Daddy can uh, so can Daddy have a go on your scooter? No. Okay. Look, what's that outside your bedroom window? A child eating bear. Yes, it is. Now, can Daddy have a go on your scooter? Oh, good. Thank you. Excellent sharing. Well done. So, that's the, the negotiation protest, John. It's a dance as old as time itself. Perhaps one of the reasons that this administration jumped on the deal like a jacked-up kangaroo <laughs> is that polls uh, suggest here that Americans were overwhelmingly against any kind of military intervention. Surveys suggested at the start of the week that around 70% of Americans were against airstrikes. Americans supported airstrikes about as much as they supported Crystal Pepsi. And look what happened to that. Uh, the Democrats' sales strategy on Syria has been a mess from the start, but that's hardly a surprise because Democrats are terrible at selling things in America. Syria is just the latest example. They're currently struggling to sell healthcare to Americans when it will only do the country a huge amount of good, and it's also already law anyway. But look, public opinion has never stopped America from getting into wars before, so I don't know why it has now. A senior White House advisor attempted to sum up what should be one of the uh, president's greatest strengths on the news last weekend, but which is actually 
uh, one of, in this context, one of his greatest weaknesses. He said, one of the things people like about this president is that he talks to people like adults uh, and he will make clear that there are two sides to every story and that these are complicated issues. You see, that is your problem right there, Andy. You're trying to sell a war. This is not a time for complicated issues. First rule of advertising. When you're selling something, you cannot acknowledge complexity. It's kryptonite. You don't advertise milk by saying milk. It does your body good. Unless, of course, you're lactose intolerant, in which case it can be a nightmare. And it does sometimes have that weird aftertaste, doesn't it? Let's accept that that's a fact. You know what? In the West, we probably have way too much dairy in our diet in general to be healthy. But still, milk! No, you don't do that. It's that acknowledging of complexity, which is why Democrats will never be able to be the effective military snake oil salesman that Republicans are. Look at the, the White House Chief of Staff, Dennis McDonough. It was all over the TV here at the, earlier in the week, making the case for war, saying, you've seen video proof of the outcome of these attacks. All of that leads to, as I say, a quite strong common sense test, irrespective of the intelligence that suggests that the regime carried this out. Do we have a picture or do we have irrefutable, beyond a reasonable doubt evidence? Well, this is not a court of law and intelligence does not work that way. What the f*** was that, Andy? <laughs> Common sense. This is not a court of law. Intelligence does not work that way. Nice sales job, idiot. You just <laughs> lost 300 million potential consumers. Now, this is not complicated, Andy. Well, the point is it is, but it can't be. That's the problem. Politically speaking, you can have no nuance if you want to sell a war. So if they really wanted to get this done, they should have called in the guys who could have really sold it. Cheney, Rumsfeld and Bush, Andy, the A-team. And I'm not telling you what the A stands for there. The, those guys were the best at selling America a war that it didn't want and definitely didn't need. They were the Sterling Cooper of warmongering. They knew that selling a war is about brand discipline, Andy. Rumsfeld said in 2002, the idea that this is going to be a long, long, long battle of some kind... Is, is belied by the fact of what happened in 1990. Five days or five weeks or five months, but it's certainly not going to last any longer than that. You hear that, Andy? <laughs> Iraq certainly wasn't going to last any longer than five months. Was that based in any kind of fact? No. Did he say it anyway? Of course, because Rumsfeld knew how to shove a war down people's throats. And it turns out that if you weren't happy with the war you just bought, you could call his complaints line at 1-800-GO-F-YOURSELF. <laughs> Uh, we need to put this in some kind of uh, context uh, as well. A lot of uh, problems. You say that, I mean, a lot of the complexities are caused by the fact that the rebels are not the kind of nice, cuddly rebels that you might want to take home no. with you after a war. Um, some of them are, you know, not not um, less than polite. It might be said they've been accused of war crimes by uh, the UN, and um, you know, so it's very complicated. Should we be giving arms to uh, extremist rebels? I mean, there's always a risk, John. History. History shows that generally arming people like this is about as risky as training your dog to eat nothing but sausages and scotch eggs and then taking it with you on a nudist holiday. You know, it, it might be fine. In fact, the dog <laughs> might even find the whole experience liberating, but it may very well come back to bite you. <laughs> it, uh, no sooner had Putin uh, spite-helped America in this, uh, he was with it again. Uh, yesterday, he published an op-ed in the New York Times, which didn't seem to serve 
any real purpose other than pissing everyone <laughs> off, which is, of course, the ultimate purpose, it seems, when it comes to Putin. Uh, in his piece titled A Plea for Caution from Russia, Putin presents himself as a level-headed peacemaker, which is an interesting, if jarring, character development for someone who most people view as a chillingly ruthless sociopath. <laughs> uh, in the op-ed, uh, he argues, we must stop using the language of force and return to the path of civilised diplomatic and political settlement. I mean, sure, Andy. <laughs> sure. That's true, I guess. I don't think there'd be many people who would deny that other than, of course, Putin himself occasionally. <laughs> but the quibble count really started to get higher when he wrote, we need to use the United Nations Security Council and believe that preserving law and order in today's complex and turbulent world is one of the few ways to keep international relations from sliding into chaos. That's just a little <laughs> hard to take, Andy, coming from Russia, who have systematically vetoed the shit out of any attempt the Security Council has made at getting Assad to cool it on the killing a bit. You know, just to get Assad to take a genocide chill pill for a bit. <laughs> Sort of like being lectured by Michelangelo about painting fewer naked willies on ceilings. <laughs> um, he, he closed his op-ed, Putin, saying, My working and personal relationship with President Obama is marked by growing trust. I appreciate this. I carefully studied his address to the nation on Tuesday, and I would rather disagree with a case he made on American exceptionalism, stating that the United States policy is what makes America different. It's what makes us exceptional. It's extremely dangerous to encourage people to see themselves as exceptional, whatever the motivation. There are big countries and small countries, rich and poor, those with long democratic traditions, and those still finding their way to democracy. Their policies differ too. We're all different, but when we ask for the Lord's blessing, we must not forget that God created us equal. Okay, hippie. <laughs> Few things there. First, one thing that America is objectively ex exceptional at is overreacting whenever anyone accuses them of not being exceptional. <laughs> so Putin knew exactly what button he was pressing there. Secondly, the whole we must not forget that God created us equal malarkey rings a little hollow when it's coming from the same guy who seems to equate gay people with mosquitoes. <laughs> uh, and then thirdly, Putin doesn't act to equal himself, making sure that he's constantly photographed shirtless on horses, shirtless fishing, or shirtless in a submarine, not to mention the way he talks about Russia. At a rally last year, he said, we will not allow someone to impose their will on us because we have our own will. It has helped us to conquer. We are a victorious people. It's in our genes, in our genetic code. Putin, Andy, is saying that Russians are genetically exceptional, which is even more f***ing dangerous. <laughs> Uh, so we need to give this some uh, uh, some context, all this uh, debate about arms. This week uh, in London, it's been the good side of arms, John. There's been the DSEI uh, biannual arms fair uh, at oh, the XL nice. Arena, the world's leading arms trade kaboom-bang-bastic death tech jamboree, or uh, <laughs> in its own words, a defence and security event. Um, <laughs> now, I know we like to live in a free world where it's uh, a nation's right. Love it. Uh, Love it. It's a nation's right to sell stuff that goes bang and makes people fall over and also to sell stuff that stops other people making different stuff go bang and make other people fall over. The arms trade, John, of course, very much a two-edged banana. And it's one of the <laughs> things we're best at in Britain, yeah. uh, alongside, for example, the uh, selective recollection of history and having been better at stuff ages ago. Oh, we're and so I guess, good at that. And, and we're I guess, the best there ever was at that, Andy. I mean, we uh, the best there's ever been. We, we've got to avoid allegations of hypocrisy, which uh, there have been quite a few flying around the world uh, over the last couple of weeks. And if you and I, John, are free to sell bugle t-shirts, mugs, 
and caps at mm-hmm. thebuglepodcast.com weaponized with the awesome brand power of the bugle then <laughs> so should our weapons manufacturers be free to flog <laughs> their multi-billion pound high-tech uh, weapons and it's basically their commemorative merch so I guess it would just be nice if we had the decency to stamp all our exports with A, a Union Jack and B, the arms trade spiritual logo the crossed fingers symbolising both the fingers-crossed hope that they won't end up defensively securing the wrong type of people and the fact that when we bang on about freedom here uh, and democracy and human rights, we may very well have our fingers quietly crossed behind our backs and not entirely mean it quite as much as our honourable British faces suggest. So I guess, you know, there is a, there's always a risk with these things. It's probably fine and we only sell them to nice despots. But when you flog your bang-bangs to countries which have an at-best frosty relationship with themselves, then you get you, you are getting into trouble. That's the problem, though, Andy, because, you know, Britain's arms trade has had a hypocritical hippo honking at it <laughs> all week after a scandal uh, that emerged. Uh, the government, the British government, was accused of breathtaking laxity in its arms controls last week after it emerged uh, that officials authorised the export to Syria of two chemicals capable of being used to make sarin gas as recently as last year, Andy. A British company was granted export licences for uh, the substances of potassium fluoride and sodium fluoride, dual-use substances, for six months back in, way, way back in 2012, Andy, a time (laughs) when Syria's civil war was very much raging and concern was already rife that the regime could use chemical weapons on its own people. Now, Business Secretary, Business Secretary, Andy, (laughs) he's responsible for business that is just defending business, uh, Vince Cable, and uh, acknowledged that he authorised the export of chemicals, knowing full f***ing well that they were listed on an international (laughs) schedule of chemical weapon precursors. Uh, The Prime Minister's official spokesman pointed out that no chemicals were actually exported during that uh, period, saying, look, you see the system working with materials not exported. Uh, the facts that the licences were revoked and the exports did not take place. The Prime Minister's view is that this demonstrates that the system is working. No, it <laughs> f***ing doesn't, Andy. That is not the point at all. That just proves that the system, in this particular instance, is extremely f***ing lucky. That's like giving businesses licence to possess rocket launchers, but trusting that they won't use them if they don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> Vince Cable said the licences were granted because at the time there were no grounds for refusal. What more grounds do you need? Yes, he's a murderous dictator with a proven track record of attacking his own people, but to refuse to sell him these chemicals would be to suggest, Andy, that he might use them, which seems so rude that, I, you know, Britain just didn't want to risk causing a fuss. <laughs> That's the British way. And what about... Uh... Assad in the middle of all this. Well, uh, John, uh, 9-11, the 11th of September, uh, is President Assad's birthday. Which, is that true? Yeah, that, I mean, that is an inflammatory oh birthday God. to have in the circumstances. Oh, that is... Um, if it, yeah, I don't know. I think the diplomatic thing to do would be to change your birth certificates <laughs> on September the 12th back then. So thinking, you know what? I'm just going to budget a couple of days. It doesn't really make any difference. So, um, so he was... Uh, he was 48 uh, this week, and um, I've tried to understand it because he's, you know, he's a he's a he's a strange man. He has this, this kind of bizarre uh, relationship with uh, his own public image, and um, I've tried to understand what motivates him. And um, here's a few facts I dug up, John. His first child was born in early December 2001, which means that it was conceived in late February or early March of that year, around about mm-hmm. the exact time that the 2001 UK foot-and-mouth crisis began, 
and at the same time that the Taliban started smashing up those historic giant Buddhas, yeah. the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan, and, John, possibly even on the day that the greatest cricketer in history, Don Bradman, died at the age of 92. His oh, second boy. kid was conceived around the time the war in Darfur began and the space shuttle Columbia exploded. And the third, whilst Kodak and Sony were embroiled in a court case relating to patents <laughs> on digital camera technology. Now, I'm not going to judge other people's personal and sexual proclivities, John, but the Assads are into some f***ing weird shit. <laughs> That's the kind of man we're dealing with. I don't know what point you've made there, Andy, but it's a memorable one. <laughs> Environment update now, and uh, unfortunately, when it comes to the environment, the no news is good news concept does not apply. Uh, environmentally, no news means outrageous journalistic laziness overlooking <laughs> mounting global crisis. But look, there may be a plan B for the environment, and uh, not plan B in the American sense, which would be to give the Earth a pill that would essentially abort the planet. Not that. <laughs> Lord Rees, uh, one of Britain's top scientists and the inventor of Rees's Pieces, <laughs> delivered a... Super little scientist, Rees. <laughs> Super scientist, great loves himself a peanutty, chocolatey treat. <laughs> uh, d- he delivered a major address on potential scientific backup plans if carbon emissions can't be curbed within a couple of decades due to, I don't know, probably debilitating disease of people not really being bothered enough to do it. Uh, Some of the options are apparently, essentially, uh, hacking the planet's climate by launching mirrors into space, seeding clouds and triggering uh, (laughs) blooms in the oceans. And if that sounds like a series of desperate moonshots, that's because they basically would be. Uh, Reese acknowledges that geoengineering is controversial uh, and also admitted that it would be an utter political nightmare. Although, you know, I think my utter political nightmare, Andy, would probably be going to sleep and, you know, maybe <laughs> dreaming that, you know, David Cameron was a fly and that he was landing <laughs> on like a horse shit and then he was flying over and landing on my face and I couldn't swat him away. <laughs> that would be a political nightmare, wouldn't it? That would be a complete nightmare. But, uh, I mean, this, John, to me, this is absolutely fantastic news because yeah. we could be looking at an absolutely cataclysmic rise in temperatures over the next 100 years you know, six degrees centigrade changing life on Earth, irrevocably leading to massive political and economic instability. And as you say, the boffins have said we may well need a plan B. And this, of course, whenever anyone says we may need a plan B, <laughs> this is translated by the world as, yay, no need for plan A. <laughs> we are in the clear. That, that is true. And also, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of language, John, that politicians will understand. I mean, let's just take as an example. You look at these mirrors, launching mirrors into space. If you tell little Vlav Vlad Putin, no ru- lover of the Russian Greens, <laughs> that he's going to have to reduce Russia's carbon emissions by 20% over the next 40 years, well, he's just going to glaze over and start thinking about what journalist he wants bumped off next or how cool gulags were. But if you tell Vladimir Putin that yeah. he can launch a giant mirror into space or change the sea, you will have his full, undivided attention and probably a complimentary ex-KGB goon. This is the way to get these things done. The the mirror technique would apparently involve blasting mirrors into space and uh, strategically placing them so that they reflect sunlight 
away from the earth. Of course, the other option, Andy, would be to turn the mirrors the other way round to force people to see what complete self-involved short-termist arseholes they're being by not addressing this massive problem in any significant way whatsoever. That would be the, uh, either way. Either way. Just depends how you want to play it, which way you want to point them. There are various other plan Bs, uh, as well as the giant mirror. Um, a plug at the bottom of the Atlantic. Um, find another planet. Uh, we've heard this week that the Voyager uh, spacecraft has left the solar system oh, yeah. and could easily uh, f- come in contact with another star at some point in around about 40,000 years' time. And that star could easily have a planet attached to it. So uh, that's that's something worth clinging to. Pray yeah. 2% harder at weekends. Um, also, with you know with the ozone layer having disappeared, those prayers get up to God a bit faster as well. Um to combat rising sea levels, uh, there is a possibility we could put all land on a five-metre hydraulic platform. Alternatively, uh, just ask Kevin Costner about stuff or leave our fridge doors open for 20 minutes every day. So, you know, there are there are things we can do, John. Failing well, let's, all... call those, let's call those Plan C, Andy. <laughs> Failing all... In which case, we can just ignore Plan B altogether. <laughs> Failing all that, we can just fall back on the old tried-and-tested things to do in a time of crisis. Uh, blame the gays, ban contraception, or call a jihad. So... <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, Australia might not be quite as uh, as keen to uh, step up to the global warming plate uh, as it uh, previously was. They have a new Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, uh, described as a compassionate conservative. <laughs> Two words that don't always mm. go well. A lot of that compassion tends to be directed towards endangered billionaires. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact, they've been conducting a breeding programme, I believe, uh, in the uh, global economy in recent years, and quite successfully. There are now more billionaires than there were. It's amazing. So they do, if only they could do the same thing with pandas. Um, so uh, Abbott got in. It's, I mean, Australian politics has been a total f*** up uh, recently, um, as uh, I'm sure you found when you were out there. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Abbott replaced Kevin Rudd. Um, and Rudd had initially replaced John Howard um, about six years ago, basically running on a platform of being uh, of saying, I'm not John Howard. He was yeah. then ousted by Julia Gillard, running on the I'm not Kevin Rudd card. Rudd then <laughs> counter-ousted Gillard, saying, I'm not Julia Gillard. And Abbott <laughs> has now got in on a very powerful, I'm neither Julia Gillard nor Kevin <laughs> Rudd ticket. It's a dance as old as democracy itself. But he's, he's beyond climate change. He described it as, quotes... Absolute crap. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is, I mean, you've got to admire his succinct analysis of reams and reams of scientific <laughs> research, argument and counter-argument. Absolute crap. Science is ninety-eight percent confidence, Andy. That's, right. That's a fact. Just wh- or it's the, or it's the fact of a ninety-eight percent confident scientist. It's just witchcraft with a clipboard, basically. Um, but I guess it shows, uh, John, uh, you know, he's a conservative. And c- conservatives, to me, generally around the world, we've seen that conservatives are like a small magnetic boy at the bottom of a well during a coin-sharpening and wish-making festival. They fear change. <laughs> <laughs> Boom! There are still tickets left for all days of uh, the Satirist for Har show as we speak. Although, oddly, um, it's selling uh, reasonably well. So you might actually have to book in advance. And um, sorry to any long-term Zaltzman fans who are used to having uh, their own row in a venue. Um, uh, we've had, I've had some uh, very interesting um, emails uh, sent in uh, about, you know, some, some topics of great global importance like, like Syria, 
uh, and others of arguably less global importance, such as Billy Corgan out of the Smashing Pumpkins, uh, which was a satirical request that was sent in. Um, and yeah, fair enough, it's about time someone satirised that savage despot down a peg or two. And um, this guy sent me a link to a story about Billy Corgan, aged 46, starring in quotes... <laughs> A wrestling-themed furniture ad for a wacky, wacky Chicago retailer, <laughs> which I think highlights a very important issue, John. Uh, and it's well done to Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins for raising this. And that is that rock stars need furniture too. Uh, he's also involved in these sideboards for saxophonists <laughs> campaign. And um, of course, the Pumpkins, uh, John. Uh, I imagine you're a big fan. Alt rock bands broke through in the early 90s, renowned for their densely layered guitar sound and angst-filled lyrics. But in fact, Corgan's obsession with furniture was clear in some of the Pumpkins' early album tracks, including I'm So Miserable That I Could Do With A Good Sit-Down, brackets on a 1930s Chesterfield city, uh, also Strangely Proportioned Coffee Table, um, I'm As Lovely As A Mahogany Plant Stand, and of course the platinum selling My Penis Is Like A Well-Made Cupboard. <laughs> so, uh, odd, odd things. Odd things, uh Odd thing sent in. Uh, another uh, request was sent in, uh, asked me to satirise sports commentary, and in particular the unnecessary verbiage spouted by sports commentators. Now this is obviously another mm. massively important issue of global, social and political importance. In particular, wrote uh, Lawrence, who sent it in, the phrase, he's only X years of age. It winds me up no end. What's wrong with just saying he's 25? Um, <laughs> Does, do, do they feel it gives their commentary an unneeded bump of pomposity, or do they just get special training to f- to force uh, to force the use of long-winded phrases where short ones would do? Now, I thought, well, if you're going to send that complaint to anyone, I'm probably the last person in the world you want to be sending it to. And also, <laughs> let's give the sports commentator some respect. These people are the poets of the 21st century. Their art needs space to breathe. And this guy's clearly the same kind of guy who'd complain about Shakespeare wasting 14 lines of prime sonnet, banging on about how he's wondering whether or not to compare some chicky fancies to a summer's day, when he could quite easily have bowled it down to a simple uncomplicated <laughs> Oh lord, it toast that bagel. <laughs> or even, you know, the Bible bangs on and on and on. You know, you could just summarise the Old Testament as... And the New Testament is basically Jesus saying, don't be a dick. And also, why why did Orwell bother writing the whole of Animal Farm when he could have just paraded around with a fuck you Stalin banner? So, um, I guess, uh, you know, different things mean different things to different people, John. But uh, do uh, email in your satirical requests, preferably about arguably more important issues than sports commentary verbiage. Also... And yes, it's annoying when sports commentators do that, but let us not throw out the baby with the bathwater here and let us not forget the finest moment in sports commentary regarding someone's age, which is Sid Waddell commentating on the dart saying, when Alexander of Macedonia was 33, he cried salt tears because there were no worlds left to conquer. Eric Bristow is only 27. Quick quiz question for you now. Um, the 16th of September, Monday, on this day in 1736, Daniel Fahrenheit, the celebrity temperature scale inventor, died. Uh, obsessed with temperatures, uh, his, his uh, scale still used for temperatures uh, in America uh, and uh, used for body temperatures uh, as well uh, here. In fact, uh, Daniel Fahrenheit's final words were 92, 90, 87, 
85. <laughs> hang on, I'm feeling a bit chilly. 81, 76. Oh, hang on, this is not looking good, is it? 71, 65, speeding up. Uh-oh, 59, 54, and I'm dead. Uh, <laughs> He died on the 16th of September, 1736, or the equivalent on the Celsius scale of dying on the 2nd of July, 947. So here's a quick uh, Daniel Fahrenheit. <laughs> that is a useless series of jokes. That has no use whatsoever. In 246 bugles, Andy, that might just... I don't know why oh, that's, that's more some... irrelevant than the rest of I think that is completely irrelevant. <laughs> That's that's some claim you're making, John. Because something there's been there's been a lot be, of irrelevance. You know, yep. I know, like he Fahrenheit died a long time ago. He got a bunch of lies before that, and then you're converting his death into Celsius. I think at that point you're so far removed from any purpose of a joke. You're in a new kind of philosophical limbo. So have a quick Daniel Fahrenheit quiz. Which of the following is true? A Daniel Fahrenheit calibrated his famous temperature scale using such marking points as the melting point of ice, the ideal toe-dipping temperature of a bath, defined as the moment that ooh becomes ooh, the optimum temperature for the underarm squelchy, and the temperature at which an old biddy or codger starts to get really grumpy if you leave it in a car. Uh, B, he had a lifelong fear of mushroom pizza, and at the sight of a single slice would burst into tears and hide in a cupboard shouting, no, no, even pineapple is better than this. C, his name is widely used as a derogatory term by climate change sceptics. Well, I was thinking my summer cottage in the countryside uh, could be turned into a coal-fired power station, but I expect little Danny Fahrenheit would have something to say about that. Or D, Daniel Fahrenheit's favourite composer was Johannes Bon Jovinius. And here comes the answer. In fact, they're all partially true. Uh, a, uh, he um, he did uh, use the armpit to uh, scale out the temperature. 96 degrees, he marked out the temperature of the human armpit. B, he probably would have feared mushroom pizza because his parents both died on the same day from eating poisonous mushrooms. Um, which, when both your parents do that, you have to you really have to look at yourself and say, what am I the most annoying child in the world? Um C, uh, if uh, that if little Danny Fahrenheit is not used like that, then it should be. And D, um, Bon Jovi, the uh, actual descendants of Johannes Bon Jovinius, the 18th century <laughs> Polish composer. Their second uh-huh. album was entitled 7,800 Degrees Fahrenheit, after the supposed melting point of rock. <laughs> so there we go. It's been a long week, John. <laughs> Uh, thanks for emails, but we're not going to we're not going to read any of them out out loud. We'll read them internally, uh, but we've run out of time, uh, so we're going to have to leave the studio. Uh, do keep them coming into info at thebuglepodcast dot com. Your satirical requests, if you're coming to my show with the date you're coming on, to satirise this at satiristforhire dot com, uh, and do check out our SoundCloud page, soundcloud dot com slash the hyphen bugle. And uh, well, that's it. Uh, on this uh, well historic day, Lance Armstrong has just handed back his uh, Olympic medal. Bronze from the time trial in Sydney in 2000 oh. uh, after he's admit, admitted his spectacular drugs regime. Poor um, guy. Also Poor admitted guy, uh, cycling with a jetpack on his back and <laughs> having swallowed a 750cc motorcycle engine before the race <laughs> and having sacrificed an illegal bull to Almighty's use to make him go faster. And um, anyway, but he's, he's turned it back. And this is, in fact, the fifth effort that the IOC have made to get back his medal. The first thing he sent back was a large chocolate coin. 
Uh, then a medley one aged eight at a school fight for doing the best impression of a horse. Then an empty Coke can squished in one of those can crushers and spray-painted spray bronze. <laughs> and then the severed foot of a chicken. It was getting desperate by this point. But finally, he has returned the actual medal. And as penance, he's going to return to the course in Sydney and unicycle it backwards dressed as a pantomime syringe. So, at least there's some... We're going to close that circle. That, that circle's been closed. Uh, thanks very much for listening, Buglers. We'll be back with Bugle 247 next week. Goodbye. Bye! Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you you, you must be so excited. Listen now. <laughs>